What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. In this episode, we speak with Anne Griffin, lead product manager at OpenLaw. OpenLaw is a consensus spoke that is building next-generation smart legal agreements. We cover a lot of great topics in this discussion, such as how the OpenLaw team is trying to build a Wikipedia-like community to drive contract law forward, what their business model is, how they overcome being such a geographically distributed team, and much more. Welcome to Fork the Product, and we're really excited to have you on the show. I'm very excited to be here. Great. So, you know, as usual, we are going to start this off by just asking for, you know, a bit of an introduction to you and, you know, tell us about your background. Yeah. So I'm the lead product manager at OpenLaw, which is one of the uh, startups, or you can call spokes, at Consensus. Originally, I studied engineering at the University of Michigan, where I learned to program in C++, even though I wasn't a computer engineer. So I have a bit of a technical engineering background, but I studied an engineering major that was kind of a mix of engineering and uh, like engineering business-focused things. Um, that's kind of the focus of my background in terms of technical skills, but also having kind of the higher level uh, soft skills and business skills as well. And I've been in product for about like the last six years and in tech for about the last eight years. And obviously, this is a crypto and blockchain podcast. So tell us about your uh, crypto rabbit hole story. Yes. So I'm relatively new to crypto and blockchain in terms of compared to other people where they've been in it for like four plus years already. So I've really only been aware and educating myself for the last two years. And it's something where originally I would see news headlines that would be very sensational about starting out with crypto and Bitcoin. And I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. But it wasn't really until I started learning more about blockchain that I thought was really interesting because I was very interested in the applications that could be built on blockchain. And about a year and a half ago, I actually wrote an article for uh, Tech 2025, which is a platform and a community for discussing emerging technologies. I wrote an article for them about if we're in a cryptocurrency bubble. And that was about like... August or September 2017, uh, which, as you've seen, what's going on <laughs> now. Um, that, that was right I feel, peak hype. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel pretty confident in that, what I my answer was in that article, um, and so that was where I started learning a lot more because I had to be able to explain these concepts to people that understand that Bitcoin is a currency, but don't understand anything else about it, had never heard of any other cryptocurrencies. And if you say blockchain, they say what, even if they have heard of Bitcoin before. So that was a really great piece of education for me is like kind of having to re-explain that to people in an article who otherwise don't really have any idea what blockchain is or what the significance of cryptocurrencies are. And um, and like more recently, obviously, so obviously I work at Consensus now. So um, I was looking to actually move into working on emerging technologies. So I had been actually taking a lot of classes on data science and other things because AI and blockchain were very interesting to me. And so when I finally decided to look around and make a move um, starting like spring this past year, 
I saw open law had roles open at consensus. And what really drew me to open law specifically is they were one of the they were one of the startups that I really understood the use case. And I could even see as someone where I'm not a lawyer. Um, I am not in the legal, I've never been in legal professional services until working with open law. I could understand the use case and understand why this was really important and why people would actually want to use this. And also just the language in which they talked about themselves was different because a lot of people in the space use a lot of the hype words. And I wasn't particularly interested in being blockchain for the sake of being in blockchain. And that really drew me to them and meeting the team and seeing how they work together as well as just their values in terms of like balance. Like those were things that really, really drew me in. So a bit of kind of wanting to work in emerging tech, but also having people where the human side of the technology is also very important to them. And that's really how I came to work at Consensus and at OpenLaw in the blockchain world. Very cool. That's a great uh, blockchain origin story. Before we, because I know we're, we're going to dig much deeper into open law and what you're doing there. But yeah. I, I want to go back to um, kind of your original curiosity uh, around blockchain. Yes. And you said you were really interested in applications that could be built with with Bitcoin or with blockchain. Was there a particular use case in mind at that moment for you? Or was it just kind of the potential of being able to rethink the way that we exchange data and interact with the world? I think it was when I started hearing about specific use cases. One use case actually I think is very fascinating is around supply chain. And I know this is not a consensus thing, but even just how Walmart is able to handle recalls now and how much faster that's making things. And even how now they have the first shipping container that's been run almost completely um, on a smart contract. Those are things where uh, my major is actually industrial and operations engineering. So understanding how this is actually solving a lot of problems that have been out there for a while is really, it was really fascinating to me because I think a lot about what does it take for things to work together so that you can have this seemingly functional, seamless experience. Like even just when you go to JFK airport and you think about all the, all the different gates and all the different airplanes and airlines and things that have to go on. It's almost a miracle that any plane ever takes off there at all, (laughs) much less anybody (laughs) ever like gets on a plane. So as, as you know, as much room that they have for improvement, I get really into that kind of thing. So that's one of the use cases that I thought was really interesting. And then like finding open law, their use case was really interesting because some of their stuff wasn't necessarily blockchain specific, like being able to automate certain parts of the agreement. Um, like for example, when I negotiate rent with my landlord, there's a lot of printing papers back and forth and like mailing and trying to call people. Whereas a lot of that is either on the platform or, um, automated in open law, but there's also the blockchain aspect where within law, obviously being able to like have a hash of that signature to say this person actually really was who they say they were. And they really did sign this on this date and time. So those are things where I was like, actually, this is really, this is really useful, especially because when you think about living in New York city, I'm mailing my lease to somewhere else. And also the post office is terrible in my neighborhood. Um, I do worry that they are never going to get my lease or they (laughs) will pretend like they didn't. Uh, So those are all things where I'm like, these were actually use cases where I'm like, oh, I really understand them. And those are the things that really excited me because obviously technology on its own is fascinating just from a theoretical standpoint, but I get much more excited about 
the application. And it's kind of like the internet wasn't that exciting until there were really good search engines to help you find those things. And it wasn't until it could help you connect to other people um, via like AOL or even MySpace. And that's when everyone was like, wait, are you, do you have internet at your house? (laughs) (laughs) You know, were you really interested in the internet before those, those moments? And that's what makes me excited is the practical applications that make the world. It's really funny how often uh, in the, in the, you know, we haven't done a ton of episodes yet, but uh, in every single one, we inevitably go back to something very old, like AOL Instant Messenger, or yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, well, you were already kind of touching on it, but would love to get some background on Open Law and you know, sort of walk us through the the project history a little bit. Yeah. So what Open Law at a like a high level is trying to do is trying to be this legal protocol on the blockchain. And what the heck does that mean? Um, from a human to human perspective, there's two audiences we're aiming for. There's one that is our B2B, which is, um, so I don't know how much background you have on the legal industry. I didn't necessarily have a ton of background on legal before I started at open law, but a lot of lawyers, they deal with these contracts that can be like 500 pages, two thousands of pages. And Anytime they have to update something in a contract that maybe is repeated um, throughout that contract, they're using like find and replace in (laughs) Microsoft Word. (laughs) And you think about, I don't know about you, but I've definitely messed up quite a few documents that were not 500 pages in my day. Um, Oh, yeah. Not like what find it, you know, like search and replace and that sort of thing. And you realize. Lawyers have been using Microsoft Word for a really long time, and Microsoft Word is still a great application, but you also realize how old it is. It was developed before the internet really was a thing, when Bill Gates was still saying that we're not interested in the internet. (laughs) And you think about how there's specific software out there for project managers, like how much project management software is out there a lot, how much specific software there is for like UX and design, like it doesn't cease to exist. And then you think about the legal profession and they're using what maybe you could call like the VHS equivalent of like technology and law, <laughs> where today if somebody was like, hey, do you want to subscribe to Netflix? Somebody physically mails a VHS tape to your house every Friday with all these new shows, which, you know, if that's all you had and could use, maybe that'd be interesting. But in law, while there are some other solutions, they're not that many compared to other professions that have stepped into the 21st century in terms of the tools they're using. And so um, what we're trying to solve is there's a lot of things about like document automation, where in what we do, there's things where you can actually create a variable for this is an organization name and you enter it in once and it updates everywhere in the document where that organization name is supposed to be. Uh, And there's other things we're building as well, where we are able to actually like upload documents and let's say it's like an agreement and we want to make it generic because we want to reuse this as a template later and it can actually identify oh we think this is like um a defendant name is that sound correct and identify we think this sounds like an organization so it's able to automatically turn that into variables so we don't have some poor human on the other end who is just like i don't 
really want to go through 500 pages and identify all these variables. You know, that's definitely a killer for adoption, especially when you have people where they're very comfortable with Microsoft Word. And that's just what they've been using since they became a lawyer since law school. So um, on the B2B, so like on the B2B side, this is a great tool for not just lawyers, but also any organization that has to do with any kind of legal documentation. that helps them. And then obviously, like I said, um, being able to have that hash of that signature to really verify this was signed and this kind of thing and doing other things like having a very easy way to do versions. Like we like to think of how we're trying to track versions as how like GitHub is able to track like branches and versions as well. Um, where in Microsoft Word, it's actually a pain in the butt to try to track when what is the most recent document and who was the last person to work on it. So um, there's all these tools that just make it easier for them to do their job. Um, Outside of that, we're also trying to build this Wikipedia like community for um, lawyers to actually contribute to this library of like agreements. So they would Mm -hmm. have this, like these template agreements that anybody, including other (laughs) lawyers or just, like people who are not law affiliated to be able to go in um, and use these. And I'll get to a bit why that's important in a moment. So the part of the goal is having this like Wikipedia uh, like thing where people are actually improving the quality, commenting on like why they think this should change and uploading new agreements. uh, Like you'd upload, have a new Wikipedia page for something that's relevant. Um, So that's something where we want to have like these high quality documents on this like public version of our site. And why that's significant is now if you're a lawyer, if I, let's say I'm a lawyer and I need a specific type of document, but me and my law firm don't necessarily have that kind of document. And I go to you, my lawyer friend, and I say, Hey, do you have this kind of document? Um, Maybe you do. And maybe you're really nice and you'll share it with me and I can make it generic and fit it to my purposes. If you don't, then I go to a legal publishing house and, um, you know, pay a ton of money for it. So part of it is also giving the opportunity for, um, you know, reducing some of these legal costs associated with law, um, just because that's how it's been forever and ever. And then also like if somebody who's just like, I'm a generic landlord and I'd rather just do business on this platform instead of mailing out a lease and that kind of thing, like they would also be able to use the platform that way yeah it almost sounds like you're githubifying law yeah in a way in a in certain way we are doing that to certain aspects of our platform because um like you know no solution is ever perfect but like i said uh, microsoft word is not like optimal uh for for i think what (laughs) what the 21st century version of law looks like yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I, I was recently uh, sitting on the sidelines through a contracting process between you know two enterprises, and just watching the red lines go back and forth between these two councils, you know, and, and it was literally Microsoft Word check changes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I just thought, this is archaic. How can anybody survive in a world like this without losing their mind? So I completely empathize with that use case. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, there's that. And I think one of the things I like about our, the not B2B where it's like, we have this community is um, there are a lot of lawyers where you said like, like people will lose their mind doing that over and over again. And I think there are a lot of lawyers where if their specific line of legal work doesn't excite them after a while, because they don't necessarily feel like they're making the difference they thought they would in law school, this is a great way for them to be able to use that legal knowledge and get that fulfillment because 
like you said, the redlining part is like not the sexy part of law. It's not the thing right. that people wake up in the morning and are like, I'm really excited <laughs> about my job yeah. <laughs> doing legal things because of what you just described. They probably have nightmares in redline. <laughs> yeah, it's very possible. I, I mean, um, I wouldn't doubt it. So uh, I, I may be jumping the gun here a little bit with this question, but I am curious. Um, I mean, open law sounds like a, a brand new way to think about contract law and think about the tools that you use to create contracts it's it's interesting in the sense that you know when you step into the open source side of the equation and you create this like like zach mentioned you you get habify law contract law mm-hmm. what is open law's position or where is where are they positioned within the ecosystem around enforceability right like because obviously a contract isn't gonna you know it, it's words on paper until a court of law decides mm-hmm. Right. And so, uh, you know, a smart contract can ease some of that. And we can talk about that in a second. But I guess what is open law's position on, you know, where do they see themselves, I guess, in that relationship between the contractees, the attorney, the legal system? I mean, some of it is really like enforceability is subject to like state and federal laws. And I know there's some states that maybe don't explicitly, this actually came up in the student pitches. Um, that I gave feedback on at Morgan State earlier this week, where Maryland actually doesn't explicitly recognize smart contracts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a smart contract is not enforceable under law because it's it's enforceable under the same types of laws that any other kind of contract that is signed would be enforced. So on that respect, we don't necessarily focus a lot on that or do a lot around that, but it's really kind of much more... Um, I think more state and federal laws and how they manage it. But I do know that things don't necessarily have to explicitly be said, like this smart contract is enforceable in a state or at the federal level for it to actually be enforceable in a court of law. Okay. Yeah, I have a whole paper I can send you, but it's also something that is um, the people who actually went to law school at open law are like really great at explaining. And I'm still um, like leveling up in terms of some of my legal knowledge around them. But it's a really, it's really fascinating how it's really making, just really making anybody who interacts with the law have to think about these things differently now. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was listening to a panel recently um, just about various blockchain technologies, and uh, there was an attorney present who was representing the legal position and some of the regulatory concerns and how you actually work with smart contracts in the legal system. And his point was, look, Blockchain technology doesn't take us out of the equation. You know, we're, yeah. we're still doing our job and we still are very much needed in the process. It just makes our lives easier. And it gives yes. us better tools to be able to actually enforce law in a way that's productive for society and for the economy. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We don't, we're not under any illusions that we're replacing lawyers altogether. Um, one of our co-founders is a lawyer and teaches at Cardozo Law School. And several of the people on our team are also uh, have gone to law school. So we're definitely not under some sort of illusion that lawyers are just going to vanish. It just really changes how they're going to do their job. Um, you know, like just like you wouldn't use a typewriter today. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who right. <laughs> don't have to do things that involve writing things. It's just now you write it on a computer and email <laughs> sure. and it's faster. Um, and the mail room probably looks a little different at big companies, you know? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're still going to have jobs. Yeah. 
So you were just mentioning uh, one of the co-founders, Aaron Wright, who I've actually seen. Uh, I think I saw him speak at the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, like a meetup that I went to. And really, uh, you know, he did a great job of explaining it. And, you know, so anyway, my question is, what is sort of the origin story for why he and I, I don't know who the other co-founder is, so would be curious about that. Uh, David Ruin. Okay. David Ruin. So yeah, what's what's their background and, and what led them to to start Open Law? Yeah, so Aaron Wright, obviously, he's a lawyer. So some of that, some of this knowledge is just he knows because he's a lawyer and he's very he's very tech forward. I wouldn't even say tech forward for a lawyer. He's just a very tech forward person. And so I think the core of the problem we're actually trying to solve is something he explicitly has a lot of experience with. And so and he also has a lot had a lot of interest in blockchain technology early on. So for him, I think he just saw very clearly how the blockchain could be part of solving the problems that he saw in law today. In terms of David Rune, um, who is um, our CTO, he is just a very wonderful man. Aaron's wonderful as well, but he's also just like very smart and really um, understands blockchain technology like very well. And they're like a very, they're very good balances of each other where Aaron is actually like for someone like, I want to say just for a lawyer, but it's kind of like, sometimes you think of having like a technical founder and someone who's not as technical, like Aaron's the kind of person who can kind of go in and actually mess with some code. Uh, but like David Rune is also someone where he is definitely seems like a technical whiz and he can do, he is easily able to think of very elegant answers to things and do things very quickly. But also one of the things I really value in him and it's getting a little off topic is just like, also he's a very like smart technical person, but also like is very um, values like the humanity side of like supporting his team and understanding how everybody does things differently. Um, but they came together obviously because like Aaron was looking for a co-founder to work on this. And I don't actually know the entire story, but they've made like a very good pair in my opinion and someone who really understood the problem area and somebody who could actually see that opportunity when somebody came to them and said like, I want to build this. And this is something where I could see the solving a problem for a lot of people, not just lawyers um, and not just big corporations. And um, previous also to this idea, Aaron worked at Wikia and that was part that actually spun off from like Wikipedia. And so he actually has a lot of experience with product that is actually community based. Mm, so that's gotcha, also yeah. something where like this whole aspect of building the Wikipedia type community, he actually understands a lot about like what people, what drives people in a community to want to maintain the community and like grow it and feel like they're actually a part of it. And those are things that have really shape what we build and like why we build it. Yeah, super interesting. Um, actually, there is a question that I was going to follow up on. Uh, uh, actually, not a question, but just a point that we keep hearing over and over again, which I think is absolutely, uh, it is unique to the blockchain world is community. I mean, it it's so interesting how important community development is. And, you know, I think in a little bit, we'll, we'll circle back to that. And, you know, we start asking about uh, team dynamics and, you know, team composition yeah. and stuff, but it is really interesting. So where we'd like to jump next is around validating assumptions. So mm -hmm. uh, 
And actually, how long have you been at Open Law? I've been at Open Law since July of this year. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, feel free to draw on, you know, your understanding of the history before you joined. Um, but, you know, how are you all going about validating assumptions around things like, you know, who is your target audience? What is your market size? Um, you know, feel free to jump around and and even we'll and even maybe a step back. before yeah. that. You know, how do you know you're solving the right problem? What what are you what thinking are you doing yeah. around that? Yeah. So one of the benefits of having a co-founder who's actually been in this space and also having so many people on the team that also have been in like legal and law is these are all problems like they've faced and it's not just problems they've faced these are problems that people in law school face and all their lawyer friends face and some of that even before I joined the team or things that I think validated that for them was like baked in where it's kind of like this is an obvious problem that actually a large number of people have um and they understood a bit about like the legal industry so for them I think that was it was a bit easier because it wasn't um it wasn't necessarily like taking a guess completely at like how big this industry is and that kind of thing because while it's blockchain it's also law and um you can kind of like lean on some of those those numbers as we kind of like drill down into uh more specific features there's a lot of things where we kind of find out from like, if it's kind of the more community side, we really see in terms of like, are people actually doing the desired action we want? Are people kind of signing up and getting stuck? Um, so as we're creating new features, we're able to actually see right away, like how that's effective on the community side with um, now that we actually have like companies that are talking to us and they're like, we want to use open law. We get direct feedback from those people where they say like, this is how we use this. This is actually what we really want you to build. And we're able to, uh, rely on, like I said, the people who are in law, but they actually know other, they have advisors and other people to kind of say, yeah, I think this is going to be big. And there are people where David and Aaron have spoken to where they told them, I think even just like our hiring for 2018, um, they kind of indicated to them like, you know, you're going in the right direction and we actually think you need to like hire more, which is part of the reason why I'm here now is because I think they figured this was actually going to ramp up in terms of the demand for this type of service um, relatively quickly. Um, circling back to the the problem that you're solving. So, you know, you mentioned that this is basically one of the situations where you're somewhat scratching your own itch, right? You've got a lot of domain expertise in the house and you've yes. got people that have experienced these problems firsthand. So they're able to really articulate what the user might need in this situation. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, many products have been built out of that point of view and built well and serve market needs. You know, yes. I think it's a great way to go. But how do you push back against um, internal biases that might develop because your point of view is, is not you know you haven't opened the the aperture wide enough to really capture uh corner cases or use cases that you hadn't thought of user types you may not be thinking of because you don't have that yep. experience in the house yeah some of so there's a couple things one is i actually email every new user uh who comes to our site that's not a so if you've ever uh created an account at open law that's not a robot that's actually me i wrote that email to you wow. so <laughs> i'm gonna go yep. sign up right now <laughs> yeah I, I i email everyone and like i also offer to like walk them through the product um and so that's that's one of the things is and i've learned a lot from our users that have taken the time to speak to me and i really value 
their time and like they're they're excited enough to actually take time to talk to me about it. Um, there's other people in consensus who are not from law that I've sat down and said, um, like, let's just do a quick run through. I'm going to ask you to do some things on the site. And uh, there's no right or wrong answer to see where people end up going or what they do or what they think I'm trying to describe actually is. Um, and that's been very insightful. And there was one point where I even had a lawyer friend of mine who I know her from high school where she doesn't consider herself very tech savvy. She had never heard of open law. She didn't really know anything about blockchain. And I did a video call with her and had her walk through the site and just got her impressions as a lawyer, but a lawyer who's not as tech savvy. Because while we're still early days and it's great to have a lot more tech savvy people signing up for the site, um, definitely validating against people where, okay, like this is someone who's never seen this site before. They have no context. They don't even know what blockchain is and they probably want to even know our site involves blockchain at all unless I explained it to them first. Um, what what are their thoughts? Like where, what are they really excited about? Where is their aha moment? And where are the parts where it's, oh, wait, where am I? Sure. So yeah. th there's a lot of um, getting to know the users um, very specifically so that it's not just, you know, like a small group of lawyers all happen to be at open law who use the product every day, just kind of bouncing things off of each other. We definitely talk to people outside of open law. And have you come across situations where you had kind of a strongly held opinion inside the building and through talking to users, you discovered something else that you had to come back and, and kind of challenge the team with? Um, I think there are like a couple of things that we've actually added to our roadmap, but they're, they're I would say they're not necessarily massive things yet. They're th like little things like that are much more about like UX sure. and design about like how we, how people discover things through the navigation where we thought things would maybe be easier for some users that people found really hard or things where like there are certain pages where people get to them and they're like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go from here. And there are other things where people actually found them like very easy. Um, but we also have some super users where I've asked them and they're like, everything is perfect. I wouldn't change anything. Um, so, but there's things where I think there are things, but through actually doing the user interviews where we were able to kind of say like, we're going to like put this on our roadmap because the people who sign up are maybe the less tech savvy people. They, they need to kind of know, okay, what's, what's next? Like, what is your goal for me to do on the site? Because for some people, they, they miss that not to any fault of their own. Uh, sure. Sure. Uh, sp speaking of super users, sorry, Zach, I'm going to ask one more question and then you can dive in. But spe speaking of super users, how are you finding your sort of early adopters? Do you have any, you know, uh, communities or places that you're drawing those people from? Yeah, there's definitely um, a couple communities. And some of it is there's the people who are just excited about blockchain and Ethereum in general, which is a big one. Um, and then there's the legal community, which some of that helps that we have so many people who have gone to law school and involved in community. Um, so like obviously Cardozo Law School is one where um, there are people who are actually Aaron Wright's students who will join and kind of test things out and just really like the site. There's other people who find us actually, several people told me they found us through Reddit and they happen to be people who are like currently lawyers are in law school. So like one of our super users goes to NYU law school, actually shout out to Ross. Um, thank you. Um, he, like, no, he's great. Um, and he, and so there's things where like people will find us different ways and they'll, um, connect with us. And also there's other communities, um, 
you know, like legal hackers and other groups that are law affiliated that, um, that we tap into and we, we try to collaborate with, but some of it is like, um, like I said, actually like Reddit has been interesting because it's been one of the top ways people say they found us. When I think one of our other super users who's based in Russia, uh, he, I think he found us through Reddit. As, no, he didn't. He actually didn't find us through Reddit. He found us through Aaron Wright's book. Um, oh, called yeah, like blockchain that's right. the law. I, I think there are a lot of blockchain projects that are relying on Reddit <laughs> <Yeah>. for <laughs> user testing and feedback. It's become a surprisingly effective resource, I think, for a lot of projects. Yeah. And I'll say as someone where before now never really used Reddit that much, I was surprised at first because I didn't know. I mean, Reddit has topics for everyone. I just didn't realize how many people were very that active in the blockchain space on Reddit, where it was like, I'm not just going to like read things and then maybe um, upvote them. I'm actually going to get involved and start doing things and getting excited about them. So that's it was a surprise for me, but it's also yeah. been like a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it's yeah. a fun thing to see. Unfold. And it's a fascinating community. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the question that I wanted to get back to, and then I know Nick's going to have a, a whole battery of questions around uh, UX and user research and stuff. Yeah. What I, I'm just to set some context for uh, a, a lot of the questions that we'll ask next. What is the current state of the product, and also? in terms of validating assumptions, uh, would love to the extent that you all have, uh, this planned out. What is the business model of open law? To be honest, we're still early stage. So there's still things that we are, we're working on. Um, the key piece that I can share is for people who want to have a private instance. So therefore like their, their agreement templates would not be shared with anyone else. Cause if you're on the public site, everyone can see, they can't see that you've signed an agreement and they can't see, what variables do you filled out? Um, but they can, if you had a specific type of document, you don't want to share with everyone. Um, you'd want a private instance. So, um, the idea is that we would have a fee around that. And given that we've had a lot of companies that come to us and want to talk to us, um, like I said, I don't have a lot of details at the moment in terms of how more intricate details of that business model, but it's something where, like so far, it seems like that should be good, but we're still evolving and it's definitely not in a, a final state because the last, even before I joined, I feel the last like year and a half has been much more focused on build, 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 uh, because really we're, we're not about writing a white paper and getting people really hyped about it and not having any code yeah. <laughs> um, down or any interface for people to use. We're really trying to build and have people get excited about something you can actually use right now and test it out um, and then sell that thing. Yeah. And just, uh, I'm quite certain I know the answer, but just in case for listeners, there is no token for open law. There's no token for open law. Okay. And I am kind of curious, uh, what is the, like, where are the connection points to the blockchain? And uh, again, I know consensus is Ethereum only, but just want to make sure it's, you all are focused on just building with Ethereum, right? Right now we're just focused on um, building with Ethereum. Yeah. So um, we're like, yeah. So like everything we're doing is on Ethereum now. So like if you're, if you sign a agreement on open law, that, um, that signature is on the Ethereum blockchain. Well, 
So we, we're actually about to go to Maine. Uh, well, hopefully you're going to go to Mainnet soon. So, um, oh, okay. but so like you can still go to openlaw.io and do things. And we have, you can, people who still have private instances with us that are still using us, but those are things where it's like currently um, Ethereum, we're currently only on Ethereum, but there's still ways to, um, yeah, there's, there's still, I think things where we're trying to work with, honestly, not the other blockchains, but things that if you wanted to, try to figure certain things out like fiat to crypto or those kind of things where it wouldn't really matter on like which chain you're on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to work with oracles and we have a, we have a connection with like Chainlink um, right now and those kind of things that we have an example of like how you would do that kind of conversion. Got it. Cool. Is it time to pivot to some UX questions? <laughs> it is. So UX, par- UX party time. Um, I think not to put you on the spot, but I think it would be helpful for listeners if you could just give us kind of a walkthrough from a user's perspective. What's the happy path of of coming to Open Law, signing up, and you know writing or deploying your first contract? What does that look like for a user? Yeah, so I'm going to talk more on the the public site. Sure. Uh, so really, the happy path is you come to our homepage, you get really excited about it, you decide to sign up, um, and then Either you see a agreement that is something where like on the homepage where it's like, oh, this is something where I would be interested in kind of testing out and or like editing that kind of thing. Or you could actually search for one and going there and either like this, this is where it kind of separates where it's like either your goal is like, I want to contribute part of this community. Kind of if you were like part of Wikipedia, you'd like, I want to to be a contributor to Wikipedia, um, you would kind of say, I'm going to find this template. I'm going to look at it and um, maybe like make your first edit. Um, And some of that is like learning a little bit about our markup language, which is like, we have our own markup language. So like lawyers and other people don't necessarily have to learn how to code. Uh, So the idea is that they would go in, make some edits and also be able to go in and um, interact with other members of the community around that contract, uh, or that's not a contract yet, around that agreement, so that it can work towards like improving that. And also, or the other option is they come in and create a brand new one um, that they don't necessarily see on the site today. The other path is like somebody actually wants to use one for, um, let's say, like incorporating, like um, like uh, incorporating their business or signing new employees, and they go on to Open Law. They find the agreements they need, and they would actually just be able to go there, um, maybe change the documents as like needed for them. Like for example, if we have an employee offer agreement that says U.S. and that person's based out of Canada, then obviously they would want to change certain things there, and um, they would actually just be able to like execute the contract and um get it signed because that's the other thing is like we want people to edit and contribute but we also want people to use the site and um actually like sign contracts and yeah and so are are people that that makes a ton of sense you have kind of two paths you have the contributor path and you have the the contract user path Mm -hmm. on the contract user side what does it mean to execute a contract is that is there a wallet involved in that process no it's you just have to sign and then that your signature gets hashed. And so you can actually see that your signature uh, was recorded on the blockchain. So like you can use like MetaMask or you can just use open law to sign. Um, You don't necessarily have to, like, I think on the currently on the public site, you don't necessarily have to use a wallet, uh, but we're still evolving because the, like I said, like 
if you are actually storing things on the blockchain, that costs gas. So there right. will be the element of um, the, the things may evolve over time. Okay, that that makes sense. And thanks for walking us through the the happy path. Um, yeah, that's like the happy path of like when you first sign up and that kind of thing. And hopefully it's like, we we're adding a lot of other things to try to get people to like, we have recent activity and that sort of thing. So people kind of come back and check of like, this is what people are doing on the site. And I'm going to now contribute to this. Cause I saw other people were working on this. Um, Cause the other goal is to have people coming back, but we're working on a lot more features in 2019 to try to uh, make the, give the community reasons to come back and continue to interact with our site. Sure. Sure, that makes a ton of sense. Um, in that entire journey that you just described, where are you? Where are you, or where have you experienced friction in the UX? And what's been the approach to working through that and iterating on those areas where users might not get it? Yeah. So one of the areas of friction is actually just like, um, and some of this is because we're still early on and working on it. Is just some user onboarding because one of the things is sometimes people will come to the site and they're not exactly sure like where to find uh, like they're like oh i've heard there's this library of agreements like and trying to figure out like which thing like to go to or that sort of thing and that i think that's actually been one of the bigger parts of friction however um one of the parts that's been fun to watch is actually when people actually get in find an agreement and get into it because the part where we even just have like those variables where it automatically updates something automatically through the whole document i've seen people just light up who <laughs> yeah. have never heard of blockchain before have really been using microsoft word forever in their practice and um that's the part where i think people get that and then i think the other piece um a friction but i'll still say it's it's less friction than I've seen with our competitors is just getting people acquainted with our, our markup language, just because it's some, anytime you give people kind of like formatting and stuff they have to do, um, people are like, Oh, I'm not really sure like how to do this. And I don't want to break sure. it. And not that you can break it, but anytime you get more complicated than just using the English language, people start getting a little scared. <laughs> they can break things. Yeah. So those are some things where um, it's actually it's like well it's actually pretty easy to use but even um but even there we're trying to figure out how we can improve that because some people have never used the markup language in their whole life so we just want to help people get through that hurdle and for the people who want to have their hands held give them a little hand holding sure yeah makes a ton of sense um do you have dedicated design staff honestly at the moment we don't it's kind of split between me and our two front end people and also as well as um actually like aaron wright um he is like he's pretty hands-on in terms of design things too which really helps what's your what's your process for getting the quote-unquote design work done you know is that just shared as needed or do you have any kind of formal processes in place uh right now i'm the i would say i'm the primary source where when we look at what we're gonna do next then i'll usually start some wireframes but sometimes based on feedback that we're getting from the companies we're working with and other things. Sometimes Aaron will get an idea and he'll just kind of go in. We work, we work in UX pen currently, which has been oh, really, okay. which has been really good for collaboration. And so sometimes he'll just put together ideas and I'll be able to kind of see that he's working on something. But if it's something where it's like, we've been talking about this idea and we know it's next. And usually 
I'll work on something and then um, I'll like, we, we use Slack a lot. So I'll ping Aaron and say like, Hey, I've kind of done this. Like I would love feedback. And sometimes he just gives me feedback over Slack and sometimes he'll just go into UX pen and like play around with some things too, which is, which is really nice. Um, he's got a very good eye for a UX, which is really nice. And as well as like our, our front end people do as well, but they're usually very focused on actually uh, coding, but when they actually do have time and they can get a UX pen, it's like really helpful to get their feedback as like a, like a show and not tell type of feedback. Absolutely. It's great when a team can all get hands on with the UX and contribute and have a conversation about it. Um, yes. So you're working pretty organically and fluidly as a team to get the, the design figured out. You have a hypothesis now, you have a mock-up or you have a prototype. Are you user testing? Or are you putting that in front of people to get feedback? What's what does that look like? There's, I think, currently, once we have the mock-up, the goal is like once we've got internal feedback, is actually just to build the a quick version of it so we can actually sure. get feedback from our real users um, instead of kind of creating layers. We're still a small startup. We're not very old, and we don't have a lot of resources. So it's actually much more efficient for us to just get feedback directly from the users and building, building out like the quick version of something rather than spending um, a month to t- build something that would should really just take like a week and we could find out if the users like it right away. Yeah, that's always a tricky balance to navigate, especially, you know, when you're a resource strap startup and you're a small team, yeah. because it can be so much faster just to go out and give feedback on yeah. something real. And we're definitely in a place where we're building brand a lot of brand new features. And so that's the other thing is we have an idea in terms of like features people need. And I think we can validate that people do need those things as a solution. And, and so it's like more of like a UX thing. So like that, where it's like, where, where it's kind of like, we're like, okay, we're not, we don't necessarily need to like iterate necessarily on this UX thing because it doesn't exist yet. It's always good to get user testing and user feedback, but it's also great to just be able to get real feedback from all the users who actually really are using your site currently. And like I said, I also talk to our users regularly. So it's also, once we build something, it's easy to get um, feedback from them in terms of those things. But once we actually, I think, have our core set of all the features we really want and we'll always be building new features, but um, once we have kind of our core set of things, then we can focus a lot more on iterating and like A-B testing and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, On the topic of new things, um, where are the balance of your roadmap ideas coming from? Is it research driven? Is it, you know, just feedback that you're getting from the community, a balance of both? It's a bit of a balance. um, It's a bit of a balance of both. Uh, And I'll say it's even like, community as well as like relying on the knowledge that people have within open law and feedback from also like the people who are like the companies and as well as just like researching things in general about just about like law and also just like design for law that sort of that sort of thing like I think but it's kind of a mix because some of the things that you get tipped off to research actually come from the users where they're like where is this or like how do I do that or this is what I was expecting here yeah, absolutely. Um, when you speak about users and research, are you zeroing in on a particular persona or a, a you know a, a type of user within the spectrum of law professionals? Right. So we kind of have a couple of personas, but they they overlap because there's the people who are the people where they're going to be the paying customers and are going to have their own private instance, and how they're going to use it is much more 
like this is going to be almost day to day for them um, versus the people where they really want to be part of this legal community and uh, on our public site. And that's a completely different persona and like how we expect them to interact and like how we're going to measure how frequently they're um, doing the things we want them to do on the site is going to be a bit different because these are people who are very busy lives and are not getting paid to, um, you know, show up to the site. So giving them incentive, but also not expecting them to be everyone to be there every single, single day. And having also the persona of, um, and this overlaps again of people where like, they just want to use, um, actually use the agreements. So that, that also overlaps. And then we also have this other persona of people where they might actually not know anything about the law. Um, and this, actually splits into two things where like they might not know anything about the law and they're also not necessarily a technical person, but they also just want to use things, even though they're not, I'm like, they're like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not law adjacent, but I want to use the contract. Um, but then there's also the people where it's like, I'm not affiliated with law, but I'm really excited about blockchain. I'm really excited about Ethereum. And I just want to like test things out and play with them here. So those are kind of like the main people we think about, but um, like our API is more aimed at the developer people. And at the current moment, we're much more focused on um, the people with somewhat of a law background because we need to get to the point where like Wikipedia, people generally trust a lot of things that are up on Wikipedia and our site doesn't really help people who want to sign the contracts on the public side if they aren't to a certain level of quality. Whereas like on the private side, you're talking about like a whole law firm that would be sure. using this. So like the quality is going to be there. Yeah, so for them, quantity. it's really, yeah. yeah, it's more about like, this is useful for them. And like, they're actually um, sign- having contracts signed on our platform. Yeah, I was actually on the Open Law website. And I was I was looking through the repository of public contracts. And that question came to mind for me is like, how, how do you quality control as a community? Like, how do you give the community the ability to quality control contracts, you know, in some meaningful manner for a range of people who may or may not have, you know, the required expertise to actually judge whether or not a contract is a, a good contract. Yeah. So right now, as you can see right now, there's not really anything indicating that, but that's something that like, as we're building out features, we want to be able to have some sort of indication or way for people to communicate about that, um, whether whatever form that ends up looking like, that is something that we want to be able to have in the future. Like for example, Wikipedia has little flags where they're like, this article concerns us. And also people can talk on Wikipedia about like their opinions on like what's going on. Or they even have things where it's like, Hey, we need a citation and not saying we're going to copy all of Wikipedia's um, features. It's just a really convenient example to use. Uh, but those are things where it's like, those are things we want to be able to build. And I'm not necessarily going to go into specifics about how we're, we're thinking about doing that in the future, but that is something that, is important because even like I'll just say from feedback from lawyers, there's things where they've said on the public site, they're like, yeah, like the quality can vary greatly and they can discern that. Um, but like right now, or, uh, right now where we, where we're at isn't a place where a random person who really doesn't understand anything about the law would be able to look at one of those and say, yeah, that looks sure. <laughs> fine, I guess, you know? Yeah. So it's, but like, those are all things where, um, you know, as we're building out the community, we were thinking about those things. Uh, surely you can just throw a staking token in there and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, actually, kidding aside, I, I really do find some of the staking uh, token concepts interesting. I mean, I, 
it's I think there's a lot of work and experimentation that needs to be done in order to make you know staking mechanisms work. But I mean that that type of thing is quite interesting. Um, but I was hoping we could jump to a little bit of sort of team dynamics and. Uh, you mentioned it's a relatively small team, but can you just walk us through uh, how big the team is right now, how it's structured, and you know what are the roles and responsibilities across those folks? Yeah, so we're a team about twenty, which some people would say is like large, but it's not. It's not that large yet. Um, and so we have like our CEO and CTO. We have our VP of uh, Business Development Operations, a VP of um, Product Engineering. I'm the lead product manager, and then we have like like a slew of great developers, front end, full stack, and as well as a position we call legal engineers, which are people where they have gone to law school or practice law and decided they didn't want to do that anymore and now um, write smart contracts and solidity for us. So we have um, a really awesome range of, of people on the team and it's still relatively like flat and we're remote first team. So we have people in like Thailand and India and Brazil and Connecticut and um, <laughs> Las Vegas and Portland. And like our CTO is actually based out of uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so you are we, truly remote first. Wow. That is insane. That You're really covering meeting scheduling. We actually, so one of our, one of our values is actually to have as few meetings as humanly possible, at least as few synchronous meetings as humanly possible. So we're really big into asynchronous meetings, which is like, it's definitely a learn. I think it's definitely where I'm used to working with a lot of remote teams, but I'm also used to working with remote teams in a more centralized structure. So there was a lot of learning I had to do in terms of how to properly do uh, asynchronous communication with people um, that's still meaningful communication, but you're not going to necessarily like every single day of the week or every single like week even necessarily get on a call with certain people where they're maybe in another time zone, even though technically you're working together with them every single day. So there's people where I talk to every single day, but I really... I see them, we'll have like a once a week all hands meeting. That's technically it's optional, but most people show up. So I'll see people in that. But if I'm working with them on a specific feature, um, there's a lot of times where we will talk during kickoff and like maybe we'll talk if there's a problem. But other than that, we're we're really talking asynchronously most of the time. And so that's been like a really great learning experience. And it also has been so freeing in many ways because I have so much more time to actually do my job and work than I did at any other company I've ever worked at. So it's like I work very hard, but they also it makes it so much easier for me to work hard and still have balance because my day isn't just crushed with meetings back to back to back. And the part of that's being a startup, but also being a startup that understands and values asynchronous communication when just a Slack message will do instead of trying to create a meeting for every time something could have been an email or a Slack message. So I, it's something like, honestly, that it really is great. I love Zach, it. Zach and I both having been PMs and him still being a PM, like completely understand not getting crushed by meetings and how much that must oh, just yeah. be a joyous feeling. Yeah. We hear lots of remote first teams using a lot of different tools, but I think it's really interesting which tools teams are choosing to stay in sync. So yeah. what does that look like for you? 
So we're very Slack heavy, like very, very Slack heavy. And we actually use this bot in Slack called GeekBot, where it actually does a, has us do a daily standup where it asks us like maybe four or five questions. Like, did you work on everything you wanted to work on yesterday? If not, why not? Um, like other things about what are you working on today? What is that related to? So it's basically the daily standup, but completely asynchronously. So I have a channel where I actually can see what everybody's working on every single day. Um, and anybody can see what everyone else is working on, but nobody actually has mm. to like wake up at some terrible hour in the middle of the yeah. night or early morning to do that every single day. Um, so that's, so Slack is like, we're very Slack dependent. Um, we also use zoom a lot for our video calls when we do have video calls. Um, so that's really useful. Um, like I think I mentioned GitHub, I didn't mention GitHub in this context, but we use GitHub in terms of like how we, um, have everybody working together um in terms of the development team in terms of ux we're using a lot of like i said ux pen because it's very easy we found it very easy to be able to collaborate with each other at the same time in ux pen so that's worked a lot for us um honestly for internal communication we almost never email each other emailing is usually for like we're maybe talking to someone else in consensus or talking to somebody who's just completely outside of consensus altogether but we rarely communicate via email because slack is a pretty it's a pretty efficient tool for us um and i think the, in terms of working as a remote first team like those are pretty like critical tools and have gotten us through a lot so far how are you capturing team knowledge things that need to be passed on things that you might want to you know share with somebody when they're onboarding team decisions where's that been captured oh so some of this actually so i forgot to mention we also use trello and we actually have a whole trello board for like onboarding so that we actually have like a checklist of things that we have to tell people like like say like make sure we did x y and z but we also like use the wiki feature in github for other things and then some of it is also just making sure people are updating that readme file um, when they're creating new features that sort of thing um and then so like if you're a new person, like those things will help. Uh, there's also like if you're not a new person, there's a lot of um, Slack history you can go through. For every new feature we build, we actually create a new Slack channel. So all the people who are involved in that feature can talk there. And it also helps to be able to go back and actually find the specific conversations about a feature instead of just yeah. like this is a generic development team and we built uh, like a hundred features and now we have to go back and find that so it's actually very easy to try to search through and figure out where was that conversation about this thing when we decided we would do this thing and so i think some of it's just how we organize slack it makes it much easier huh. it's like kind of like anti-documentation in a way for things where you're like sure we would just have too much documentation otherwise possibly um but we also need to be able to move fast and have a record that we agreed on this thing happening so um that's kind of what what we do now but a lot of it's like like i said for things where like for like new new team member onboarding we're using trello to make sure that things that we're not dropping the ball on things and then there's like a whole process for for hiring which i'm a little involved mm -hmm. in hiring but not as not as much to make sure that, um, you know, that we are, we're being what I call like being a good date, like that you're following up on things and people feel like they're getting respect and attention. Um, you know, well, that's, well, that's the yeah. thing. It's like, you know, you never like companies will ghost you and all these other things. If you ever, you know, for everyone who's gone through an interview process, yeah. um, we like, we've, um, you know, thanks to our VP of product engineering have really improved, um, 
shout out to Imroth. Uh, we've really improved on our hiring and there's always room for improvement, but really just making sure that we're being organized and making sure that like, we know who the last person was who talked to that person and we have the feedback. And cause on a small team, it can be very, it could just be like, we're moving fast and maybe some of these things aren't a priority and we have these things we need to launch, making sure that we are, um, you know, do just being respectful of people's time and showing them that we appreciate them because like we would never want someone we actually want to hire to just say, we're not interested because we didn't hear back from you for three weeks or say like, um, or you miss the opportunity. Yeah. It's, I mean, the market is insane, yeah. particularly for yeah. blockchain engineers. Yeah. So those are, those are all things where it's like being able to coordinate, whether it's like Trello lists or other things. Um, we try to do the best to make it so that like, if I go to bed and someone like, you know, and the person in Thailand is supposed to interview someone, like they would be able to like look at my notes and see all that centrally. So it's not like we're staying up together at some weird time to always go over that kind of thing, yeah. especially when a hiring process can go so fast. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing a great job of keeping it lean, which is awesome. Yeah, that's definitely one of our goals. Um, we, like I said, our goal right now is to really build uh, and get the product out there. So we want, we try to find ways where we can be efficient, but not efficient at the cost of like trying to, like I said, just be good people to other people. I think that's one of the reasons I think I mentioned before really drew me to open law is that they care a lot about like the user and they care a lot about people in general. So it's not just technology for the sake of technology. It's actually technology trying to help other humans. In my current role at, uh, Cubic. I am a product manager and I am also uh, doing a bit of hiring at the moment. And it has been an epic struggle to find blockchain engineers. So I know that's a very big problem with pretty much anybody trying to hire a blockchain engineer. So just kind of curious, what uh, what have you all done to you know address the, the problem of finding good engineers and particularly blockchain engineers? So I think our trick is that we don't necessarily always hire blockchain engineers that are just interested in blockchain. Like the people on our team who write Solidity, like all, all those people are legal engineers. They're actually, they taught themselves Solidity before they joined us. So that makes it slightly easier because that's like a very specific person. And there's actually a good amount of people who are lawyers who are really interested and learning how to make smart contracts for like the, a lot of the other stuff that we are working on. Um, like we need people who are like full stack people and I'm like, we can teach them, you know, other things. And like the same with like front end, there's some things where it's like, you don't necessarily have to come on board and know a lot about like being a blockchain developer to necessarily be in those roles. Yeah. So that's some of that stuff is like, we're, we're open to people learning those things, but also like the people who've shown they're proactive and learning yeah. some of those things. So I think some of that's how we've actually managed to successfully get around that, but also at the same time, hiring blockchain developers that are maybe that they're not, don't consider themselves blockchain developers before they come on board, but are also people where, like I said, have that, like really understand the human element to it. Yeah, and I I think I can relate to that. We've increasingly loosened our requirements, and yeah, ultimately, if you have a good engineer, they'll they'll pick something up. Um, yeah. yeah. 
So just to round things out for this chat, we're curious how our guests are thinking about success in a world where business models are still potentially in the distance. We're still trying to figure out how to measure a lot of things. Sometimes we're in a world where the promise to users is that we're not going to use your data to measure things like engagement. So how are you thinking about measuring success at OpenLaw? So like I said, things are still early days, but in terms of like the community, a lot of it is like, are people actually contributing and are they trying to connect with other other people? And some of this even for the moment extends outside of our site where we actually have our own community Slack channel where people go and ask questions about how do I do this? Or I ran into this error um, for people who are like using our API, that sort of thing. Um, so really like engagement is around like, are you contributing and are you are you being curious? Like, are you asking and are you trying to, trying to build? And, um, I think like the, the other side of it, like I said, like our B2B side is like, are people actually using us? Like, are they actually signing the contracts with us? Um, like they're not just using this for like a really pretty place to store all their agreements. They actually, um, you know, edit them there and then like fill them out and then like send them out and get them, get them signed like through our platform. Um, and I know that's kind of like the more specific idea, but I think like the larger thing is like, we'll know we're successful when like the dynamics of like how, how some of these things in law are like kind of like forever changed. Like when, you know, like not, and this is, like I said, not a knock against like Microsoft and Microsoft Word, but like when that's not necessarily the default, like there's a lot of things where there's just like a lot of great like technology and we want to leverage that to make it so that it's easier and just better and more efficient. Like this is like, we didn't make this just because we wanted to make some software. It was like, we made this cause this is actually a real problem that people face. Like I've had dinner with one of my friends and mentors the other night where she, she was never a lawyer, but she used to have to work with like a bunch of legal people and would have to work with contracts all the time for all these mergers that were going on during the financial crisis. And she would describe just like how tedious the work was. And when I explained to her what open law did, she just like lit up. And that's the kind of thing where I'm like, that's when you know there's a problem and people are like, wait, you do what? Like, that's amazing. Uh, so I think that's kind of the bigger measure of success. And, and also like, and I can't necessarily speak for everyone, but also I feel like also bringing a bit more like, humanity and that kind of thing to legal and the justice system as well. Um, and, mm. and how we're doing some of these things, especially with our, our public site. So those are like slightly less tangible, measurable things in the short term, but I think longer term, like that's how we'll know that this was a successful endeavor. Like, yeah, you will be able to measure like money and those kind of things. And those are things where obviously like, um, we, like how many companies that are using us and how big our community is will be things that will be important to us. But at the end of the day, uh, we actually want to see things, these things change and we want to be a part of that. I did want to very quickly ask two questions. One, and I'll explain both of them together. One, how much of open laws product is open source? And two, uh, you know, the, the whole name of the podcast is Fork the Product. So to the extent that there is, you know, a good amount of open source code in the product, how do you 
how do you you know tackle the challenge of open sourcing part of your product while still maintaining a successful business? Yeah, I think for us, we have a unique, just a unique opportunity because we have our core libraries that are open source and like the API, but at the same time, to be able to actually like kind of have your own private instance and actually execute those contracts in your own private instance that's not something we are open sourcing and that's actually where like the model is is coming in so like there's enough where it's like if you wanted to use the free side of the platform and be able to kind of like build things on top of that and actually charge money that would be completely fine with us but in terms of like if people want to have their own private instance with us and do those kind of things um that's that's where we're charging and be able to have a business model and um it seemed to make sense so far especially since like we have the free things now and the people who are approaching us aren't just saying like oh no we'll just wait to see what happens with the free side of things like they're Mm -hmm. very interested in kind of using the private side of things very soon very cool thanks so much for joining us this has been a great conversation we'd like to close out with more of a personal question So if you can, tell our listeners something about yourself that is an interesting fact or something that they might not know about you. Oh, wow. Okay. So you saved the hardest question for last. I wasn't prepared. (laughs) Something that's interesting about me, people might not know about me. Uh, This is actually something people probably know about me, and I've said it a lot on the podcast. But in general, I think that especially in emerging tech, but just in tech in general, we need to kind of go back into the like very, I'm very supportive of kind of bringing tech back into actually focusing on helping people versus just kind of like letting technology take over people. Because I think we've seen a lot of that. And I think that uh, one of the benefits that blockchain and the opportunities blockchain has is to actually give power back to certain groups, uh, you know, assuming like things, things go down the, the good path. So, and I think that just something I want people to know about me is that I'm very supportive of thinking about like humans first and like how the technology can help humans, not just creating technology for the sake of having cool technology. Um, yeah, that's something that's really, really important to me. And I've been working on like the last like couple, couple of years, like from even like doing presentations on like bias, um, on communities of color and AI. And um, those are things that I focus on, which is like I said, it's not like a unknown thing about me, but if you leave with anything about me, those are things that really matter to me. That's great. That's, a, I think, a great note to end on as well. Um, so yeah, thank you so much again, Anne. And we uh, are you know, looking forward to keeping track of Open Law over time. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me today. I had a great time. Thank you.